Hey, Vetfolio Voice family. This episode is sponsored by VetroScience and features Dr. Tanner Sleed, who you may remember joined me for a discussion about congenital kidney disease in dogs earlier this year. Well, for this episode, we kind of went to the opposite end of the spectrum and talked about chronic kidney disease in our older patients, particularly in older cats. I really like talking to Dr. Sleet about kidneys because he has some incredibly specialized knowledge that he brings to the conversation, but he pairs that with a practical approach that I feel comfortable implementing as a general practitioner. In this episode, we also dive into interpreting the recently updated IRIS guidelines and how, why, and when to implement the treatment recommendations noted in the guidelines. We also talk about an exciting new laboratory test that may help with our decision-making for patients with chronic kidney disease in the not-too-distant future. Dr. Tanner Sleed is a fellow in Advanced Urinary Procedures and Extracorporeal Therapies at North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. He graduated from Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine and went on to pursue a small animal rotating internship at Purdue University and a residency in small animal internal medicine at North Carolina State University. He's a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine with a focus on nephrology and urology and interventional medicine. Well, we're here to talk to Dr. Tanner Sleed in this episode about chronic kidney disease in cats. And this is a disease condition that I I actually really do like to manage because I feel like we can have some rewarding outcomes and get our patients some good time with their their owners and, and some good quality of life. So thank you for joining me to talk about this, learn more about it and figure out you know how we can do it even better. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start out with the staging guidelines. We talk about iris staging. So can you kind of review how do we stage chronic kidney disease, CKD in cats, and why is that important? Yeah, so um, a quick plug for the iris staging too. They was just recently updated, so all those numbers are nice and up to date. Um, but basically, it's a staging system from one through four um, that is based off serum creatinine, SDMA, UPCs, and blood pressure, which we can talk more about in a second. But it's really important because at this point, you know, these guidelines have been around for so long that based off of the stage, it's kind of helpful to remind us of the goals of therapies, the goals of monitoring, and then kind of based off of the stage, what sequela we should be looking for and testing for when we are doing our routine staging. And I feel like that makes a lot of sense because, you know, of course, if we're treating CKD, the goal is not a clinical cure where this is a progressive disease. So like you said, to remind us of what our goals are and what is indicating that we're having success. Yeah, because now at this point, we know that a lot of we know kind of what occurs as CKD progresses. And we also now know that some of those factors or some of those things that will change are directly associated with prognosis. So the sooner we can catch them and and start slowing them down, the longer these cats can live. So let's talk about what we're looking for and kind of how to do that. You mentioned BUN creatinine, SDMA, and blood pressure. Kind of putting blood pressure off to the side for a moment. Can you elaborate on some of the important blood work findings in these patients and what we're looking for. Yeah. So aside from blood pressure, the big ones or the big other substage would be proteinuria. But beyond that, I think kind of like we've talked about before, the those are not the only important things that happen with CKD. And so we know that there's kind of a laundry list of, of these other sequela and kind of the big ones that I usually think about would be hyperphosphatemia, anemia, gastrointestinal upset, weight loss, and dehydration. 
So can you elaborate on some of the important blood work findings in these patients and how to interpret those, you know, even in light of other abnormalities we might see in our patients? Yeah. And so the big question for a lot of these cats are, when are we diagnosing them? And what other kind of concurrent conditions may be going on that could affect those initial lab work findings that we're using to stage them? And so some of the pitfalls that we commonly think of are, especially for really early CKD, we know that those cats can be really difficult to pick up, not only because some of them don't even lose their concentrating ability, but sometimes their renal values still aren't outside of the reference range. And so not only that, um, but then sometimes kind of on the flip side, if it's really late stage disease or if a cat has another reason to have something that causes muscle wasting, that, that will also affect those blood work parameters. And so not only does it matter about the timeline, but again, do they have something like hyperthyroidism? We know that that can mask CKD. And that's where it's important to remember that, again, BUN and creatinine aren't the only values that we're looking at. And there are other things that can kind of get rid of those pitfall pitfalls or overcome those pitfalls. And the, the primary thing that I'm talking about here being SDMA, that's a little bit less affected by some of those factors that I just mentioned. And SDMA, if we can dive into that one just a little bit more, SDMA, gosh, it's like, I have such a love-hate relationship with SDMA yeah. because it's so helpful. But then, you know, sometimes you get that blood work back where like everything's normal, but the SDMA is like one point high. Yeah. What do you recommend doing in those cases? Yeah, so I think SDMA in general, we like it because it has such a small volume of distribution that it's going to be more rapidly reflective of GFR in cats and dogs. And so that's why sometimes it's going to be a little bit more accurate than creatinine. Now, we also know that it's affected by a bunch of other, there's, there's more and more papers coming out that's saying it's affected by this disease or this disease, but we know that it's also not affected by age, muscle mass, and body condition. And so that's where it can be helpful for those pitfalls we talked about earlier especially those cases. And I totally agree. We see this all the time. It's like one or two points outside of the reference range. I think what's important to remember is that one, the range for SDMA actually on IRIS guidelines, they may have fixed this. I don't think so. It, it goes a little bit higher than, or the, the low end of normal for IRIS is a little bit higher than the reference range for a lot of the um, labs that, that you'll submit it to. And then not only that, we're also finding that for SDMA specifically in relation to kidney disease, it's probably more important to compare it to the animal's baseline. And so if that's just another kind of scenario where more data points is better, because, you know, maybe a cat or a dog, you know, sits at 15, 16 for a really long time, that could be reflective of completely normal renal function in that animal. But then when it increases to 17 or 18, that is more indicative of, of, of true disease. And so that's all to say that one point increase outside of the reference range, maybe don't do anything about it yet, but keep an eye on it. And it could give you an idea of what's happening with the trajectory of disease need some of my clients to listen to that answer. So when every year I'm like, can we do the blood work? You know, we need, yeah. let's do annual blood work. Why do they need it every year? Cause stuff changes and it stuff does changes. exactly like what you're talking about. And having that baseline is just invaluable. Yeah. It can change within the reference range, I think is the, the important thing to remember. And I, I agree. It can be difficult to explain to clients because that's another test that may come back as quote unquote normal, but right. Right. Normal is good though. <laughs> So one of the other parameters that we evaluate when it comes to CKD is proteinuria. You mentioned blood pressure as well earlier. So can we jump into those a little bit? Why is evaluating and treating proteinuria important in patients with CKD? Yeah, so proteinuria is, again, another one of the substages. So we have proteinuria, we have hypertension. And proteinuria, we know, like, pathophysiologically, 
that protein should not make its way into the tubules, not to mention the urine. And so when it's doing that, it's already indicative of one, disease, and two, it's causing more damage. So as those proteins are hitting the tubules and trying to be resorbed, those cells just aren't made for that. So it's causing progressive tubular injury and nephron loss. And so not only can that be exacerbated by hypertension, which makes it kind of confusing, and sometimes the question is chicken or the egg, but regardless, we know that proteinuria itself in cats is associated with the development of azotemia, shortened survival, death within a month, and just overall mortality. So lots of different studies that have documented this, and that's why it's so important to know if it's happening and treat it if it's present. Absolutely. And then what's your go-to if you do identify proteinuria in a CKD patient? Yeah. So at this point, we do have some good studies to compare the drugs that we we can use, right? And so generally, we're thinking of something that's going to affect the RAS system. For a while, we were using ACE inhibitors, so benazapril and alapril, um, but more studies have come out documenting the efficacy and safety of telmosartan. So Symmetra is the brand name. And so that is the best drug that we have for treatment of proteinuria. And not to mention, there are also studies that document that it's actually pretty effective for blood pressure too. So especially for these cats that are both proteinuric, hypertensive, it's a really great option. Now I have to ask, is that true for dogs too? Less studies documenting that, but yes, I mean, especially for proteinuria, we do know that in dogs, it is the most effective way to treat that. As far as the hypertension goes, it's a little bit less clear if they're going to be as effective as, you know, compared to amlodipine. Um, but again, there are studies coming out on that pretty rapidly. So hopefully we'll know. Okay. And so you mentioned that it's an, it's a very effective drug in cats for uh, addressing hypertension as well. So is that kind of the the go-to for hypertension as well, or are you still reaching for, for amlodipine or ACE inhibitors or something like that in cats? That's a good question. I'm glad that you asked it because for instance, if you were to go and you were to look at like the consensus statement for managing systemic hypertension, it's still going to say amlodipine for cats, but you'll notice if you go to the updated IRIS guidelines, you can use either one. And so I think the biggest takeaway is that if you're treating hypertension as a, as a sole problem, it probably doesn't matter which one that you choose. There's a little bit of evidence to say, especially in humans, but maybe in cats, that after a while, amlodipine is not going to be quite as effective. But again, in a scenario where both of those are happening, reach for telmosartan. I think what is important to be aware of when you are treating both of those things is that ideally we're not going to be using both a RAS inhibitor and amlodipine because in that scenario, we're actually affecting the afferent and efferent arterioles. We're really predisposing them to damage that could come with any sort of change in their blood pressure, change in their blood volume. And so if, if you need to treat two things, use RAS inhibition. If you need to just treat hypertension. You can use either, but don't use both. Okay. Okay. I love that. That was, I feel like a very clear answer where I can pick out what I need from that answer. And I always like leaving things up to clinical judgment, but sometimes it's nice to just say, when you have this, reach for this and treat it this way. Yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, even if we have data that says one is more effective than, than the other, it doesn't mean that's always going to be true per patient. Maybe Simply, it's easier to pill your cat with amlodipine than it is with um, liquid telmosartan, you know, so there's all those other factors. But yeah, just keeping those things in mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So there's also these, you know, like sub-sub stages, if you will, or clinical sequelae that we see in patients with CKD. Can you talk about the development of some of these sequelae and how to manage them? I'm thinking specifically like anemia, hyperphosphatemia, things along those lines. 
Yeah, we can start with anemia. So these are, you know, the sequelae that we know happen from CKD. These are the things that aren't necessarily true substages based off of iris guidelines, but things we know that we can expect and that may affect overall prognosis. And so anemia specifically, this is a really, it's a really interesting one. And I think a kind of confusing one in that I think in general, when we're taught about this in vet school, at least the idea is that they're anemic because they aren't producing EPO because the kidneys are diseased and that's where it comes from, right? But we actually now know there's a bunch of reasons as to why that anemia is probably happening. In addition to the EPO, it's just they're living in an environment with shortened survival. Um, there's oftentimes an absolute iron insufficiency. There's mineral imbalances. And then even the therapies that we use to treat things like hyperphosphatemia and hypertension, proteinuria, so those RAS inhibitors can also contribute to anemia. So I think those are things to remember just at the start of if you find an anemic CKD cat. But once we diagnose the anemia, there are some really nice studies to say that we have effective treatment options, right? And so usually those are our ESAs, so something like darbipoetin. The question still remains, does treating anemia improve their long-term survival or, or prognosis. And we haven't really had a lot of good studies to say yes, definitely yet at least, but we do know, and I'm sure you've seen this in your clinical patients too, that when we treat that, the cats tend to feel better. Right. And so that is at least something that is worth looking for and treating if present. Okay. I'm glad that you said that because that was kind of my feeling too of like, man, even if it doesn't increase their survival time, I do feel like they get better quality when they're not yeah. so anemic. Yeah. I will be honest. I'm not totally sure what it says in the guidelines as far as anemia goes. Is there a certain cutoff for you where you're like, that's too anemic. We definitely yeah. need to start something and get concerned. That's a really good question. And no, there aren't any specific cutoffs. In fact, there was just a big conversation about this earlier this year at renal week, and people were kind of trying to give their two cents about what a cutoff is. And I would say the number just keeps getting higher and higher because I think as, as we realize all of the different things that could be affecting these red blood cells, we realize that they're probably being affected by those things before they're actually truly anemic. And so kind of the old way, or what I remember being taught is that if they're below like 20-ish, 21, 22, definitely treat it. But now there are plenty of people that say that even when they're starting to drop in the 25% range, if the owner can afford it, and if it's easy to give to the cat, it's probably worth giving because you may just as with all of these other diseases and sequela, the, the later you start it, it may reflect how likely they are to respond. Did I hear about a new drug for anemia and CKD cats that is starting to become available or starting to become more widely used? Yep. So you're thinking of the HIF inhibitors or hypoxia-inducible factor inhibitors? Sure. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's new and it's exciting. It's something that they've been using, been using in humans for a while. We don't have a lot of data to say how effective they're going to be um, and when the, the perfect time to use them is, but it's basically targeting, you know, one of those other mini processes that, it, that are happening with anemia of chronic disease. And I think this is kind of cool to talk about because we have plenty of studies to say that chronic kidney disease is an inflammatory state. And when we have that inflammatory state, that's when hepcidin is kind of upregulated and it's telling the iron to stay in the cells. And that's probably contributing to the anemia with CKD. And so these new drugs are, are blocking that pathway and making iron more readily available. Oh, that's going to be a really interesting conversation as we learn yeah. more about those. I'm excited to to hear about that. Agreed. Yeah, me too. Okay. So that, I, I do feel like that shed a lot of light on anemia, that it's complicated and just to stay proactive with your patients about it. Let's talk about phosphorus. I feel like hyperphosphatemia, oh my goodness, this is 
just my nemesis when it comes to CKD because Mm -hmm. dietary therapy can be difficult. Sometimes they don't always do well on the drugs to reduce phosphorus and it can, it can just be a really tough thing to manage in my experience. Yeah, I totally agree. And the question is still, even when do we start treating and, and what is the best way to treat it? And if we, even if we do treat it, are we doing anything? Sure. I know. I was, I think I was consulting with internal med on, it was a dog and they looked at the phosphorus and they're like, Oh yeah, that is pretty high, isn't it? And I was like, I think so. Like yeah. I've seen higher. I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think it's confusing too, because we know that it's one super common and that too, especially like at a stage where we're starting them on diet, oftentimes diet does reduce the phosphorus. I mean, these are phosphorus restricted diets, but we know that it reduces it into what's a quote unquote normal range, but there are different target ranges for phosphorus in animals with CKD, right? And so for instance, like even in stage two or stage three, we really don't want them to be higher than 4.5 or five respectively, which is within the reference range for a lot of the labs that we use. In that case, yes, this phosphorus I was calling about was indeed high. (laughs) Um, I also understand there's a new test that may help with early CKD diagnosis and it's related to phosphorus dysregulation. Yeah. And so you're, I think, referring to FGF23 or fibroblast growth factor 23. It's a mouthful. Um, And so, yeah, this is really cool and exciting. It's available through IDEX as of, I think, earlier this year, um, just for cats so far, not necessarily dogs yet. But it's exciting in that it's been around for a while and humans as one of the most early predictors of the phosphorus like dysregulation that goes along with chronic kidney disease. And the very short and sweet version is that the with kidney disease, you have a decreased like co-receptor that's required for FGF23 binding. And so when kidney disease progresses and you have less of that co-receptor clotho, then you have this accumulation of FGF23. And so FGF23 in health would otherwise be helping you handle like phosphorus excretion and vitamin D conversion. But again, when you can't use it, it starts to accumulate. And then that kind of indicates that something is going amiss before maybe the phosphorus is actually increased out of reference range. Oh, that's okay. That's interesting. And so how do we run that test? Like, is this something that we would run routinely? Is this an, an easy test to run, I guess? Yeah, it's a very easy test. It's just a blood test, again, I think submitted through IDEX. And the question now and what we don't fully know yet is when is the perfect time to run it? I think the strongest recommendation right now is for early stage TKD cats, like stage one, for instance, when we don't necessarily know, do they even need a diet yet? And so that's a good time to say, well, maybe their phosphorus isn't necessarily abnormal. Maybe we have some evidence that they have reduced kidney function. Let's do an FGF23. And if it's elevated, then at that point, it's probably reasonable to start either dietary therapy or phosphorus restriction. What we don't know yet is exactly what range we're trying to keep it in. I think right now, it's just kind of a greater than this is abnormal, less than this is probably normal. But what I I have found helpful, at least in clinical scenarios, are these cases where, you know, maybe they're on a phosphorus or they're on a phosphorus restricted diet. Again, their phosphorus is kind of high normal for their stage, um, but we don't really know yet if if it's worth it to start a, a phosphorus binder. And submitting this test can be helpful to kind of increase the comfort in, in starting something like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And do you anticipate with this test, as we learn more about it and we get more information on the reference range and how it affects our patients clinically, is this something that we would potentially like anticipate on a wellness screen at some point? Honestly, I think so. Just as SDMA has slowly made its way onto more routine blood work panels, I think FGF23 definitely will head that way. This is 
fascinating conversation. Like I said, I really like, I like managing CKD cases and then I feel like I'm learning so much. So I, I think, I hope everybody else is as well because yeah, I'm having a good stuff. time. It's fun yes. Stuff. Okay. So we talked about anemia. We talked about hyperphosphatemia. What are some of these other clinical sequelae, these sub sub stages that we should worry about? Yeah. And so I think one of the kind of more nebulous sub sub stages or, or sequela is GI upset. And so this has been receiving actually a little bit more attention as of late in that Again, we realize that you, you know usually these cats aren't feeling well, and of course the result of that is them not wanting to eat and then potentially losing weight, losing muscle mass, which we know can directly influence how quickly they're progressing through their stages and their disease. But I think what we're finding now is that kind of similar to the anemia cutoffs that are getting higher and higher, there's a lot of cats that are losing weight that maybe that hasn't really even been picked up by their owners, or maybe they're going infrequently enough to to their veterinarian that we, we haven't really seen that their weight is dropping, but it's actually probably the first symptom of CKD in a lot of these cats. And I will say with all of the conversations that we've had about cats in various podcasts and webinars and, and things like that, almost always when I go see a cat patient, really like most of my patients, but definitely with cats, like that scale comes with me on that yeah. house call and I'm going, okay, let's reweigh you Yeah, because it's amazing. I mean, they're, they don't weigh very much. So even just these subtle drops can really be significant. Especially with the furry ones, right? You sometimes have yeah. no clue until they've lost like half their body weight or half their muscle mass. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We have our, our GI upset and our cat with CKD and you know, they don't feel good and they're already kind of finicky about eating. Honestly, sometimes it's, it just is easier to like throw in the towel when it comes to kidney diets and things like that to say, I, I just want them to eat. I just want them to eat something. So can you remind definitely me, I'm, I'm sure there's more of me out there, the importance of dietary therapy and how to successfully transition these patients onto a kidney diet. Yeah. And so I think, you know, dietary therapy, we've known for a long time, it's kind of the cornerstone of therapy. And that's for primarily two reasons, but a lot, probably a lot more that we don't really talk about quite as frequently, but the big one being phosphorus, right? And so we know that just as we talked about before, phosphorus dysregulation is one of the first things that's happening with chronic kidney disease and, you know, has a bunch of negative effects throughout the body. And so these diets are reduced in phosphorus it's for both early renal diets and the normal renal diets, and then usually some degree of protein restriction for the standard renal diets. And so, yeah, it's really difficult, right? These cats don't want to eat a whole lot, but we want to start them on a new diet. And maybe they've been on the same diet their entire life. And I certainly have a lot of clients too, that even if you give them every single um, renal diet option under the sun, they can't get their cat to eat it. And so I always go back to this one study that I think helps me remember to not throw in the towel. And it's a study that it looked at almost 150 cats to see how many cats physically could not be transitioned onto a renal diet. And I think all but like six or seven of those cats were not able to be trans transitioned to a renal diet. And so that's just a number to say, if we try our hardest, and if we really think about the way that we're doing this, we should be able to get these cats onto a renal diet. But again, the question is, is all win too. And I think for at least in my setting, a lot of times we're diagnosing these cats the first time for an acute kidney injury, or sometimes you're diagnosing, you know, more progressive CKD, but hadn't diagnosed it prior, right? And so they're already dealing with these sequela that we know of. So things like 
hyperphosphatemia, things like acidosis, all of these other things. And so one thing that I try and remind myself is that, you know, even though we know that diet is so important, it, or sometimes we want to wait to start diet until we've addressed some of those other things that are probably making them feel sick and probably making it harder to get them onto a new diet. I was just thinking that of, you know, the whole don't start a new diet when they're in the hospital. And yeah. you know, even if they're not in the hospital, they're at home. Mm -hmm. If they're showing those signs of weight loss of GI upset and, and some of these other parameters that you talked about, maybe as important as the diet is, that's going to come secondary to getting some of these other factors stabilized. Yeah, exactly. Because I think, you know, the, the, the conversation around diet is usually this idea, oh, you just happen to diagnose maybe stage one or stage two CKD and a cat that's otherwise doing okay. Like, sure, that's a perfect time to just start diet and see what happens. But yeah, that's that's just not the that's not the clinical scenario that we're always dealing with. And so I think it's it's good to relieve the pressure of starting diet immediately in those cases. So two questions when it comes to dietary therapy, one is early renal diet versus standard renal diet. Do you have kind of a cutoff where you're like, you need to go on a standard diet, you need to go on an early renal? Yeah. So generally stage one CKD is still kind of the, the, the time where we don't know exactly what role dietary therapy plays. We don't want to start these cats on, on true renal diets that are more robustly phosphorus and protein restricted too early because we also know that they need those things to continue their bodily functions, right? And so uh, stage one is is probably the better scenario for doing an early renal diet. And then that probably bleeds over a little bit into stage two as well. But this is also where I think this would be a valuable scenario to look at FGF23 too, right? And so that can that can answer your question as to start a diet, yes or no. But then in stage two as well, you know, if we start, if we have them on an early renal diet, for instance, and maybe everything is looking okay, but their FGF 23 is still is elevated, then maybe that's the time to transition from an early renal diet to a, a true like standard renal diet. So many moving parts and pieces here. Yeah. And put the puzzle together. My second question was like appetite stimulants, like Allura yeah. or something like that. Are those safe to use to kind of help with these dietary transitions? Yeah, they absolutely are. And so for a while, you know, we had mirtazapine, which is a generally effective drug. I think the question is, does it last, does it continue to work as well as it does at the start? And what do we do for the cats where it's just not working? And yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Allure because now we have, you know, the feline labeled cat and agonist. And so these are, I think in one, they are effective to answer your question. Two, they can definitely be helpful in transitioning to a new diet. But three, the, the kind of thought process was, what do we do for these cats that, you know, maybe in later stages are more finicky with their diet? We already have them on a renal diet, but they we can't really get them to eat anything beyond that. Then Allura is a good thing that we can use. And so I think in the studies that we have, a lot of the cats will improve in regards to their body weight and their appetite in as, as less than two weeks. And I think the kind of biggest cutoff or the biggest number that we found that is most encouraging for this drug is that most of those cats that respond, they'll experience a greater than 5% increase in their body weight pretty quickly. And so again, going back to that weight loss and that kind of subclinical muscle wasting, that can be incredibly valuable for kind of extending the trajectory of their disease by getting that weight back on them. Yeah. And that quality of life, kind of like we talked about with the anemia, like maybe they'll be okay at these lower levels, but man, they feel a lot better if their anemia is treated. And and I see kind of the same thing with weight, like when they're just, you know, wasted away little raisins, then yeah. they obviously don't have the quality as when they're able to, to have some of that muscle mass and body weight back on them. 
Yeah. And it's, it's hard for the relationship between the pet and the owner too, right? If you're just sitting there watching your animal no longer eat and slowly lose weight, you know, that, that affects the relationship for, I know a lot of um, owners that I have feeding time is the time that they really, you know, get to sit down and, or they get to really interact with their pet. And so improving that, improving that time not only helps with that relationship, but it helps with their prognosis and how they're feeling overall. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about supplements? Are there any, any supplements that you like ingredients that you recommend that you feel like help with these patients? Yeah. So supplements are, are just as in human medicine, right? They're becoming really widely available and there's lots of different options. And I think what we're realizing too, is that there's, it, it can kind of be information overload, right? There's so many different things that we hear are helpful. We hear not helpful. We hear may not be doing anything. Um, but I think there's a couple of different ingredients to kind of um, keep on our radar. And the biggest ones are those essential fatty acids. So that's what's in a lot of these, these newer supplements. And then a lot of these supplements too, will have other ingredients that are actually helpful for some of those sequelae that we've already talked about. And so there's a, a supplement now that, you know, not only provides EFAs, but provides some degree of phosphorus restriction with um, ferric citrate. And so just being aware of all of these other, other supplements that are coming out is helpful, but also the question is how palatable they are too. And so I really reach for the supplements that have different types of different options in terms of liquid versus chew versus tablet and things like that to increase the yield or increase the likelihood that our, our pets are actually going to eat them. Because again, these these ingredients are probably doing something to pr promote renal health. I feel like we're learning more and more about ingredients and supplements that, you know, like you said, I'm sure there's plenty of them out there that aren't really doing much, but the ones that are, man, I, I, I think of like arthritis supplements and things like that. And just the, the effect that I see with some of these ingredients. So I'm yeah. glad that there's more attention being brought to these supplements and we're learning more about these ingredients because anything to support our, our little raisin kitties. <laughs> I know. And some of these too, in uh, the same kind of vein of them not wanting to eat, a lot of these supplements basically are treats for our pets, right? And so I know I have my pets on a couple of them. And sometimes that will not only get them, once they have that treat, they'll actually want to eat their meal. But you know, they, they think it's an exciting time, they think they're being rewarded. And so what better than to kind of improve their quality of life by by eating them, but also by promoting renal health? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dr. Sleed, as always, this has been a fantastic conversation. I learned so much. And, you know, I, like I said, this is a this is a disease that I do feel like we can get a lot of quality back for our patients and, and really get them some good time with their owners. And I, I feel like this conversation just clarified a lot of the, the sub-stages and the sub-sub-stages in the IRIS guidelines to know how to address them, when to address them, and, and build on that quality that we can get for our patients. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. Well, I hope after that talk, we're all feeling a little more comfortable about what to look for and how to implement different treatment recommendations for our cats with chronic kidney disease. Tanner, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to VetriScience for making this possible. For more information on VetriScience products, visit their website at www.vetriproline.com. That's www.vetriproline.com. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, 
If one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.